So as I say, we're continuing this series then in Romans chapter 12. I wonder if you'd turn to page 1139, and um, I'm going to invite Russell, here he is, I'm going to invite Russell Sloan to come and read uh, that passage to us. Thanks, Russell. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve that God's will is his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the the grace given, uh, may I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and those members do not have all the same function, so in Christ, We who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, honour one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless, do not curse. If you have a Bible to hand, uh, why don't you turn back to page 1139, Romans chapter 12. And our focus this morning is going to be on verses 11 through to 14. It's just four verses before us this morning. But they are challenging verses, so why don't we ask for the Lord's help to hear and obey his trustworthy word this morning. Let's pray before we come to God's word. Our Father, we thank you for laying this firm foundation in your word. We thank you for the promises it contains that you will be with us in sickness and in health in every condition. Father, we are going through different circumstances this morning, but we are united by this desire to hear your word this morning. And Lord, we want to be united in obeying it too. So teach us and motivate us to live for your glory, we pray, as we read your word this morning. Amen. Well, it's sometimes said uh, that, like the White Queen speaking to Alice in Alice in Wonderland, Christians have to believe six impossible things before breakfast. But actually, as we grow and understand more about how small we are and how enormous our universe is, I think actually it gets a bit harder to really decide for sure what we think is so impossible or not possible to believe. But I wonder if sometimes it feels like being a Christian requires you to, to do six impossible things before breakfast. 
I think there's four nearly impossible things in our passage today. We're told to rejoice in affliction. We're told to share our lives with the needy. We're told to bless those who persecute you and not curse them. And all that while keeping up our spiritual fervor and being constant in prayer. It's a pretty tall order, isn't it? Last week we heard about that powerful story about Ranulph Fiennes' hero. I can't remember her name now, but the small woman was her nickname, wasn't it? And she had that powerful testimony uh, to living for the Lord and having an impact. But sometimes it can feel like only somebody like her or a kind of a Mother Teresa-like figure could ever do some of these things that we're called to do as Christians. So we need to take a step back, don't we? As we've been doing every week so far, we've been going through this practical exhortation very closely, but we've been trying to do it in light of the whole book of Romans. We need to keep that big picture in mind. And one of the big things I've taken away is that this life that we're called to live as Christians is fitting. It's reasonable service. And so I want to offer us a a kind of a Romans roadmap, just very briefly, uh, for a couple of minutes, just to help us get that big picture. So Romans has actually got a very simple structure. It breaks down into four big sections. Chapters 1 to 4 is probably what we're most familiar with. It's the bit that tells us about how we're all uh, sinful, how we all fall away from God's glory and deserve condemnation. But wonderfully... God's grace has been shown to us in sending the Lord Jesus Christ to be our saviour, taking away our sin on the cross. So guilt and grace in Romans chapters 1 to 4. Romans 5 to 8 we're maybe less familiar with, uh, but it's really all about more grace. Grace in the Christian life. Grace in a, a broken world. And we'll come back to that in a second. Then the next slide, Romans 9 to 11 even more grace. This is, this is helping us to understand the deep roots of God's grace in his decision to be gracious to us from all eternity. And then chapters 12 to 16, the ending, which is what we're looking at now, the how to live under grace, you could say. What does a lifestyle shaped by God's grace look like? So that's Romans. Let's come back to Romans 5 to 8, because I think this is a really important section of Romans, and we're probably less familiar with it. Okay, I hope you can see the diagram there. Basically, in Romans 5 to 8, Paul tells us that all humanity is divided into two kingdoms. First of all, you've got Adam's kingdom. Now, that is the kingdom of sinful humanity. It's the kingdom of people who have turned away from God. And it leads to death. It's the reason that there is suffering in the world. It's the reason that we all face death, because we've turned away from the Lord, like Adam. But wonderfully, Paul tells us that there is now another kingdom in this world, the kingdom of Christ, And this is the kingdom of grace. This is the kingdom of eternal life. And when we trust in Jesus, we move from Adam's kingdom to being fundamentally in Christ's kingdom. That's where we belong. We're in Christ, connected to him, living under his gracious rule. And so the commands in this passage are fitting for us because we live in Christ's kingdom. We live under grace. We have his spirit empowering us to live his way. But that doesn't mean it's easy. Paul also tells us in Romans 5 to 8 that we are still living, in a sense, in Adam's kingdom. We still live in this broken, suffering world. And we're not completely healed yet either. We still fight against sin in ourselves. And so there's this tension in believers 
On the one hand, we're really citizens of Christ's kingdom, but we still live in a broken world. We live in the kingdom of grace in a broken world. And in this passage, Paul wants to help us understand how that practically works. How do we actually navigate that tension in our day-to-day lives? How do we live under grace in a broken world? Uh, So that's what we're going to look at this morning. And I wonder if you just look down at the passage. First glance, it looks like a pretty long list of commands, almost random commands. But there are a few groupings, I think. And the verse numbers are a good guide to that this morning. So we're going to be looking today at how to keep our zeal, verse 11, how to have joy in affliction, verse 12, how we can care for the saints, verse 13, and then one final challenge in verse 14. So lots of different things, hopefully quite practical this morning, hopefully quite detailed and nitty-gritty. It might help to think as we're going through, is there one thing here that I particularly need to think about this week? Is there one thing that God is particularly addressing me from this morning in this list of different things. So firstly then, verse 11, Paul says, uh, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. So we've got a negative here and a positive. Hope you can see how they're related. Negatively, don't be lacking in zeal. And positively, that means keeping your spiritual fervor. That's interesting, isn't it? Because sometimes people talk about evangelical Christians as the hotter sort of Protestants. Have you heard that? Almost as though it's a sort of, you know, a nice to have, or it's even a little bit weird, a little bit cultish. And maybe as we get a little bit older, it can be tempting to feel like that, the kind of enthusiasm of youth we sort of get maybe a little embarrassed by, and we actually think, yeah, we probably should be a little bit more cool, a little bit more calm about our Christian faith. But our apostles' expectation here is that we will have zeal. Some of us will have a dramatic conversion experience to tell. Others will maybe reach this point more slowly. But the expectation is that if we're in that kingdom of grace, if the grace of the Lord Jesus has reached us, then we will have zeal. So that's one side of it. But then there's a strong note of realism here too as well. Because sometimes Christians speak as though all Christians should always be overflowing with zeal all the time, don't they? as if no true Christian should ever have to struggle with a sense of of spiritual fervor. But Paul says, don't be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor. This is something we're going to have to work at. We live in Christ, but we've still got a bit of Adam inside us as well. So here's the first way Paul wants us to live in the kingdom of grace in a broken world. He says, sustain your zeal. Keep it up. Literally, he says, be boiling in spirit. So the image I have is of a saucepan bubbling away on the hob. And we need to stay on the hob. We need to keep bubbling. We need to keep our spiritual fervor. It's easy to lose, isn't it? I'm sure we've all had times where it's been tough to keep our spiritual fervor. So how can we keep it? Well, I think the last part of the verse is here to help us. So Paul says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, verse 11, serving the Lord. That's quite a vague thing to just chuck into this list, isn't it? What does it mean, serving the Lord? I think Paul's put it in here as a guide to show us how we can keep our spiritual fervor. Otherwise, it sort of seems a bit pointless. Surely all of this is serving the Lord. 
So Paul's saying, sustain your zeal through practical service. Often it is the people in, in our experience, isn't it, who have their sleeves rolled up who seem to be the most joyful. I think of uh, the people who serve on the soup club team. They always seem to have a smile on their face as they're dishing out the soup. It's maybe because it's so nice, I don't know. But they are stuck in and they always seem to be rejoicing in serving uh, people at soup club. And that seems to be what Paul's saying. We'll sustain ourselves in our zeal for the Lord if we keep offering ourselves to him for practical service. Put it another way, if we stop giving, there's a real danger we'll stop growing. We become introspective and critical. And if you want a test for where you're at this morning, if you're thinking as you're listening, oh, I wonder how this sermon is going to help me to serve others, then you're probably doing okay on on this command. But if you're thinking, this sermon's not really doing much for me this morning... Well, it could be that it's just a really bad sermon. But it could be that you're just, you're just thinking, how can this help me? And Paul's saying, don't think about yourself so much. Think about yourself less and think about how you can serve the Lord. And that'll really help you to keep your spiritual fervor. So if you're thinking you might have gone off the boil a bit this morning, why not have a think? Is there a regular way that I could be involved in practical service? There's lots of different groups around church that would welcome you. At all different kinds of levels, there's a place that you would fit. Um, Or if something like that would be a struggle, uh, maybe the regular time commitment or getting out of an evening, maybe you could just commit personally to doing something practical to help somebody else. Could you make somebody a meal every week who needs one? Could you give somebody a call on on the phone just to chat with them and encourage them? Find a way to be regularly involved in practical service if you want to sustain your zeal. Okay, that's verse 11. Let's have a look at the next group of three commands in verse 12. So Paul says, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Now the hope here is the hope that we thought about at the start of our service. It's the Christian hope that we have of the future coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. And that, because we've been justified by faith, we're so confident of being accepted by God, that we can look forward to that day with rejoicing. As we think about it, it puts a smile on our face because we know the Lord is coming back to wipe away every tear from our eyes, to lead us by springs of living water, to glorify us and make us new. That's our destiny. And so uh, Calvin says, Paul uh, forbids us here to set our hopes on the earth and bids us set our hopes on heaven rejoice in hope. But again, we get the realism in this verse as well. We're not there yet. However joyful our hope makes us, we still face afflictions. In chapter 5, Paul's talked about how those afflictions are for our good. They strengthen our faith. They strengthen our hope. But Paul's not naive about this. He doesn't expect that we're going to be able to always rejoice in our afflictions. It's going to be a struggle and a challenge. And so he says, be patient in affliction. He doesn't say rejoice in affliction. He says, be patient in affliction. So we're caught between these two worlds. In the kingdom of grace, we rejoice in our hope. But in this broken world, we have to persevere in affliction. Well, how do we navigate between those two worlds? How do we survive with that tension? I think the answer is, again, at the end of the verse. Have a look with me. Verse 12. 
Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Why does that why does that connect these things up? I think because prayer is an expression of hope, fundamentally. Uh, a really good summary of what prayer is all about uh, comes in uh, the, uh, the teaching, in, the traditional teaching in the Catechism that uh, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God. So when we pray, we're recognizing that the world isn't all that we want it to be. We've got desires. We are afflicted. This world is broken. We've got desires, but we are exercising our hope because we're bringing them to God. We're trusting that he is our heavenly father. He's good and he's able to answer our prayer. And so this is why the fundamental Christian prayer is an expression of hope. We say, don't we, your kingdom come. We say, come, Lord Jesus. This world isn't all that it should be. But we long for that day We rejoice in hope of the glory of God at the coming of the Lord Jesus. So I think the great mark of a Christian who who understands their hope, but also is realistic about the state of their world, is that they are prayerful. I wonder, are we prayerful? Have we understood about our hope? Have we understood about the state of the world? If we have, then we'll be prayerful. Persevere with joy through prayer. So if you'd like to be somebody who has that kind of joy that Paul's talking about here, then why not set yourself to pray your kingdom come every day? Do it when you're well. Do it when you're afflicted. Say, come Lord Jesus and mean it. And see if that doesn't help to sustain you through your trials. Well, we've seen this tension twice now, and I think we get it again in our third verse. Have a look at verse 13. Paul says, share with God's people who are in need. Now, if you've got another translation, you might see there uh, the word saints instead of God's people, or literally, holy ones. And that's really important, because Paul is saying that all of us here today, if we're trusting in Christ, are God's holy people. In Romans terms, uh, Paul's told us that we've been declared righteous because of Christ. That's justification. And now we are being conformed into the image of Christ more and more. And that's sanctification. There's this kind of twofold holiness that comes to us through Christ. We are God's holy people. We live in the kingdom of grace. But we still live in a broken world. The Lord's people, God's holy people, have got needs, Paul says. Uh, Many of them across the world and many of them in our city have got needs. God's holy people lack food, housing, work, family, money, health, energy and time. These are the realities. And some of them are sitting here this morning. And our apostle is calling us collectively as a group of Christians to share with those of God's people who are in need. Now, the kind of sharing that Paul's talking about here, we, we, need to make, we need to be very clear with ourselves, I think, that this isn't a kind of paternalism, a sort of a, a helping hand where you sort of stoop down and you remain superior, kind of detached above it all, and you're just kind of giving a bit of a hand-me-down. That's not what Paul's talking about, because the word that's translated share, translated elsewhere, as fellowship, uh, partnership, is a really close, intimate connection. 
Paul's calling us as God's people to, to fellowship, to share with, to own the pains and the needs of the Lord's people in our midst. And that's really hard. There's so many needs, there's so little time, even in our own congregation, let alone the rest of the world. So if we're going to do it, what's the best way to share with God's people who are in need? Well, I think, again, Paul gives us uh, some practical advice at the end of the verse. So verse 13, share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. Now, I'm going to give you one more kind of literal translation, because I think this is very helpful. Literally, it's pursue stranger love. Okay, hospitality means stranger love. It's welcoming in of strangers. And we're told to really chase after it, to pursue it. Now, Paul is talking primarily about brothers and sisters in the church family here. Even when they feel like strangers, we should pursue hospitality with them. So how do we do that? Well, it's great, isn't it, that here at Bloomfield, lots of us stay around and have a cup of tea and a chat after church. We fellowship with each other. But can I suggest that one of the things that that fellowship should involve, if we're listening to Paul here, is we almost ought to be chasing after people who we don't know yet and trying to get them into our homes. Simple as that. We want to be exercising stranger love towards our brothers and sisters. Because sometimes our brothers and sisters, we know that they're brothers and sisters in the Lord, but they feel like strangers. So let's be hospitable to them. Let's welcome them into our homes and share our lives with them. Find a date. Make it happen. And do it again, even if they're not in a position to invite you back. Calvin wisely points out that the more a man is disregarded, the more attentive we should be to his wants. And it's worth saying, just very briefly, this kind of hospitality was of powerful, deep significance in the early church. Early Christians took this command very seriously and were well known for their hospitality. They Uh, loved each other so much that pagans mocked them for how much they loved each other. But they also um, showed love towards people around them and tried to welcome them into their community. Uh, When uh, plagues came into the cities and all the rich people left, it was the Christians who stayed behind and looked after anyone who was left and tried to bring them into the Christian community. Uh, And maybe it doesn't feel like there's that need for that kind of hospitality in our society today with our social security system. But we all know that there's big holes in our social security system, and probably many people that we know are slipping through that net. Uh, Tracy Crouch, MP, has recently been tasked with the job of being the minister responsible for looking at loneliness. Apparently 14% of people in the UK population would say that they always or often feel lonely. That means there's 55 55 people that I'm looking at this morning who would say that they always or often feel lonely. So I think there's still a need for hospitality. Um, um, Before we move on, I want to encourage you that it doesn't need to be hard. Um, Paul's not necessarily thinking of an elaborate dinner party here. Uh, We were actually, Emma and I were really touched the other day because um, one of the, um, somebody who lives across the road from us, uh, another mum, just simply came across on Friday afternoon and knocked on um, our door and and said, oh, Emma, are you in this afternoon? If you want to come across, we're just going to be in our house. Very simple, 
really nothing apart from the willingness to kind of go across the threshold and invite somebody to come and spend time with you in your house. And that was really touching for Emma. It was, uh, Emma went and enjoyed that, and we've now beginning to get to know that other mum. And all because she made that effort to make a simple gesture of hospitality. I wonder, could we be a congregation that's known for that kind of simple, generous hospitality towards others, even if they feel like strangers? So to quote um, David Cook from those Bible notes, uh, what have we seen so far? Hospitality is the key to genuinely helping. Prayer is the key to joyful perseverance. And service is the key to sustained zeal. I wonder which one of those you could most do with thinking about this week. Well, finally, I want to just touch on the uh, final verse of our passage, probably the hardest uh, command of all, very challenging. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Okay, so Paul's telling us that whatever anyone does to us, we ought to be seeking their good. Now, you can see the realism here, I think. There's an expectation that God's people will be persecuted. But we may think, goodness, Paul, you've totally lost the plot. How could we ever really do this in this broken world? The world is too broken for us to live like that. If we do this, we'll just get literally run over by people who will abuse that. Well, there's more on these kind of issues uh, further down in Romans 12. So we're going to not look at this in detail this morning. Instead, I just want to encourage you that when this happens, when Christians put this into practice, this is not weak, but incredibly powerful. I wonder if you saw on the news this week uh, the story of Larry uh, uh, Nassar. Thank you. Um, He was a sort of gymnastics doctor involved in the US gymnastics program and in one of the major university programs as well. And this week he was sentenced to 175 years in prison uh, because of his sexual abuse of gymnasts under his care between the ages of 7 and 18. And the court heard testimony this week from nearly 160 of Nassar's victims. The first person to go public with these allegations against Nassar was Rachel Denhalander, and she is a Christian, and she risked her reputation to try and shed light on Nassar. And she gave the final victim statement this week. And I would really encourage you to go on the internet if you can and have a listen or a watch to it. Um, It's very, very powerful. And in closing this morning, I just want to read you a part of what she said. So have a listen to what she said to her abuser, uh, Larry Nassar. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness. But Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know that forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you've done in all of its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, 
without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says that it's better for a stone to be thrown round your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble. And you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you carry speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray that you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Brothers and sisters, I submit that that is how to live in the kingdom of grace in a broken world. Christ died so that you, who were dead in sin, could live to God in this new way of the Spirit. And so as hard as this is, we present ourselves to God for his service. Put Christian love into action this week. Do it because the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is with you. And all glory will go to his name. Amen. Shall we pray for God's help as we seek to do some of that? Let's pray. Our Father, we have heard this morning something of the call of the kingdom of grace. To be people of justice and mercy. To be people with humility. To be people of genuine practical love in action. As we seek to serve you to be people of hope, to be people of faith, to be people of passion and zeal. Lord, these things are too much for us, except by the power of your Holy Spirit. So Lord, increase in us, we pray, the work of your Holy Spirit. Help us to find ways this week to do at least something of this, to move a step in this direction of putting the love that you've shown us in Christ into action as we live out the kingdom of grace in our broken world. Lord, we pray that for Christ's glory and honour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's take the opportunity now to be faithful in prayer as a congregation in our prayers for others. So let's pray. Father in heaven, you are our Father, and we thank you this morning, we praise you, that we can come before you with our desires for ourselves and for others. Lord, we call you our Father because you are good, and you brought us into your family. And we call you our Father in heaven because all this world is under your fatherly rule. And so we come this morning with humble confidence before your throne to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And so we pray, may your kingdom come.
Father, we long to see this broken world become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. We long to see justice triumphing, evil defeated, people restored, and sorrow and sighing flee away. We long that you might be all in all. So we pray, come, Lord Jesus. But knowing as we pray that, that that will be a day of darkness and not light for many in our land. We also want to ask that the news that Jesus is already our ruling Lord, that the kingdom of grace is open to anyone, we want to pray that that message would be honoured and run its course in our society. Help our ministers, Frank and Bill, and all our elders to, to proclaim and teach the gospel with boldness and to lead us with zeal. Lord, make our church community a picture of this kingdom of grace. Lord, we want to ask that you'd make us a people of genuine, simple hospitality. Draw people through these walls and into our lives, even as you draw their hearts to you. And Lord, as we go out from here to scatter into our city, may our conversation among non-Christians this week be full of the grace of the Lord Jesus, so that we may know how to respond to everyone. And Lord, as we live this week in advance of Christ's coming, Lord, we long that your will would still be done here on earth, as in heaven. And so, Father, we want to pray this week for those in our society who are lonely. Lord, you've said that it's not good for us to be alone. And so we ask that in your mercy, you'd help us to be a society in which the lonely find friendship. We pray for Tracy Crouch, MP, as she takes on this new task of leading a cross-government group to try and address the issue of loneliness. Give them insight and wisdom. Give them ability to, to know what they can do uh, to help this issue. And Lord, we pray for those in our community who seem to especially struggle with loneliness, for young people, new mothers, and the elderly. Please would they find friendship. Father, we want to pray for our government and the elected leaders more widely. Father, as they exercise the difficult task of governing and leading, give them special wisdom, special foresight, and special compassion. We pray that for the Prime Minister and her cabinet, for the opposition, for our new Secretary of State, and for all our MLAs. And Father, as we live in this broken world, your Son has also taught us to ask you for our daily bread. And so we want to pray for ourselves too. Lord, please bring an end to our afflictions, protection from those who seek to persecute us. Give us what we need for our journey this week, whether we are in wealth or in want, in plenty or in need. Uh, Father, we want to pray for those who received AQE results yesterday. Uh, for them and for all the other P7 children, we pray that you provide good education for them in the coming years. We ask that you'd help them to trust in you and in your uh, good gifts that you give us every day, that you would uh, walk with us and protect us. And Father, we ask all this, asking that you forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and that you lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, may we offer our bodies to you as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. We pray this with hunger and with hope 
This is our desire. And so we say together in Jesus' name, Amen.